Amen, amen. Good morning. Welcome to Valley Baptist. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 16. We've been working through the Gospel of Luke, and today, chapter 16, we come to a very difficult passage. Every commentary that I opened up, the very first line in the passage said, this is the most difficult of all parables to understand. Most of them then just skipped on down to the parable of Lazarus and the rich man and kind of skimmed along. But we here we go through, we kind of choose a book of the Bible and we just kind of pluck away. And so I appreciate your prayers as I, you know, there's a saying in seminaries that if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. And so I hope that the mist lifts from my brain by the end of this message. And so we would have clarity. It's a difficult one. It's a hard one, and I pray that uh, God would work through it. So let's pray, and we'll read our passage. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this text. Father, I come before you uh, just a mere man. And Lord, we ask that your spirit, Lord, would uh, meet with us, Lord. May your spirit illuminate the meaning of this text, Lord. Open our minds and hearts, Lord, that we would um, just have a a glimmer of the message of Christ here, Lord, that we would understand what it is um, that you're trying to convey, uh, Lord, to us, that we would rightly understand uh, what was being said in the historical setting. Lord, we pray that this passage would come alive. Lord, help us in our weakness. Lord, we desire to grow closer to you. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. 
for he either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And Father, we come before you and we ask you for help. Lord, help us to understand this text, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story here, we're picking up in Luke chapter 16. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, I forget exactly where, maybe chapter 12 or so, Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem for the last time to celebrate his last Passover. He would go to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate all the festivals. So he's moving from the Sea of Galilee, the region in the Galilee area, south following the Jordan River, down to Jerusalem where he'll end up. Along this journey of about 80 miles, he stopped, he talked, it's recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. This journey kind of continues. I don't know where we are geographically in this journey. The next mile marker we get to is in chapter 19. We see that Jesus arrives into Jericho, just northeast of Jerusalem. But in today's story, it really began back in chapter 14. Jesus was invited over to the home of a Pharisee. It was a Saturday, the Sabbath. There happened to be all of the leaders of the Pharisees and scribes at this guy's house. There happened to be a guy that was suffering from dropsy who had a disease. Happened to be Saturday. It was a total setup. Jesus recognizes the setup, bless you. He recognizes the setup that, okay, it's the Sabbath. There happens to be the sick guy. If I heal him, they're going to accuse me of violating the Sabbath. So Jesus looks at them, the Pharisees and scribes, those who wrote the law about the laws. They had created all of these silly little rules that weren't found in the Bible. And he says, is it lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath? And they essentially stayed quiet because if they were to say, yes, you can heal someone on the Sabbath, all of his friends would be upset with him because he just ruined the whole setup. And if they said no, then they would be seen as the cold, sterile, just mean religious people that they were that cared more about maintaining their religion than they cared about human life. And so they didn't say anything. And Jesus goes ahead and he heals this guy with dropsy which then led Jesus to basically give a long sermon at them sort of thing, calling his followers to step it up. We read stuff in that chapter 14 towards the end. Um, You can't be my disciple unless you pick up your cross and you follow after me. Towards the end, unless you get rid of all your possessions, you can't follow me. The very last line of chapter 14, Uh, 14 says he who has ears to hear let him hear at this point 
the Pharisees and scribes, I think, there's a lines being drawn in the sand. They're stiffening up and getting angry at Jesus. And then you have the sinners and the tax collectors on the other side who are hearing. They rush to sit down at the feet of Jesus. And as they come at the feet of Jesus, at chapter 15, verse 1, the Pharisees and scribes basically stick their noses up in the air and say, who is this guy that calls himself the Messiah that allows the tax collectors and sinners to hang at his feet. At this point, then Jesus tells the three parables that we looked at, the three lost parables. We see the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. The whole point of this is Jesus is conveying to them that the the heart of God is to reach all of humanity. All humanity is lost. And so God rejoices when these sinners and tax collectors are eager to hear what he has to say eager to see their lives change and to follow after the Messiah. It's in this context that Jesus continues in chapter 16. So in this big crowd, you have the, his disciples, you have the sinners and tax collectors, you have the Pharisees. In verse 1, we see that Jesus, he, now he was also saying to the disciples. So the next portion of this conversation, it's not directed at all of them. Now they all can hear it. But he's focusing on his disciples. And he tells this parable in the first eight verses that's terribly difficult to understand. You have a very rich guy. He has a manager that is entrusted with caring for all of his funds. Now, don't let the whole he was a rich guy slip past you. When we say rich, we're talking like Mitt Romney rich, like Bill Gates rich. Wealthy, 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 rich man. He doesn't have time to manage all of his money. He has a guy taking care of that business. He doesn't follow every little dime. He gets word that this guy has been stealing from him or squandering his resources. So then he confronts the guy, challenges him on his poor management, and then he fires him. In the time of firing, it wasn't like he was fired and he was kicked out of the door right then. He was responsible for a huge as corporation, essentially. So he was fired, but he had to get everything in order and transfer it to the next guy. He realizes that in this action, he's in trouble. Because do you think he's going to be able to find a job as a management manager after he was just fired for corruption? No. So he comes up with this plan to essentially excuse his, the, the rich man's debtors of reducing their debts of a significant amount. And then all of a sudden, the rich man comes in, discovers this, and he's impressed with the guy. He's like, this is a great job. And Jesus then uses this story as an illustration to his disciples. And this is why me, or I, I, and them get terribly confused. Jesus is using a total crook as an illustration to his followers. It doesn't make sense. And this is why a lot of commentators start out the very... I mean, go to any commentary, open up Luke chapter 16, and the first sentence you're going to read is, this is the most difficult parable to understand because we can't wrap our brains around what's going on. So hopefully I'll be able to straighten it out for us a little bit. A little bit. Not totally confident myself. (laughs) But here's the story. Very first verse. He says, there is a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported as squandering his possessions. Somebody squealed on this guy. He gets information. Hey, something that's not legitimate is happening and you need to go confront him. I haven't been following all of the presidential debates. My time's far too valuable (laughs) unless I need to sleep. But I caught one. 
And I caught the Florida debate when I was up at Anna's grandpa's house, like they'd been cycling through it a whole bunch of times. And Mitt Romney was kind of on the hot seat for some of his money that like, hey, where's your money going? Do you know that you have it in some account and you, you own stock in this company? And he's like, listen, like I ha- I've made so much money. And for the, my position not to be swayed by companies, I've set all of my resources. I've entrusted them to a blind trustee. I have no clue what he's doing. And since this has happened, the, tr- the trustee has given an account for, for his funds. He's, he's fixed the problem. But he's like, but I have no say. I barely know where that, I don't know where that stuff is. And it's intentionally that way. This is the kind of guy we're talking about. So this guy that's controlling all your stuff, he's ripping you off. You need to go deal with him. And so in verse 2, he gets to fired. The old Donald Trump, that show, you've been fired. He sits him down. We need to talk about this stuff I've heard. He called to him and said, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you no longer can be manager. He's fired. He's let go. He needs to give an accounting. Get all your stuff in order. You need to pass it down to the next guy. At this point, there's the uh uh-oh. How am I going to feed myself? How am I going to take care of my family? I've been living pretty high on the hog. I've been making a lot of money and stealing even more. Like, like what am I going to do? Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my manager is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I don't want to go get a minimum wage job and have to break my back to work for a living. I am ashamed to beg. How am I going to survive? I'm in a pickle. Nobody's going to hire me. I'm not going into another line of work. And then he has his aha moment. What am I going to do? We see in verse 4, he doesn't tell us what he's going to do, but we discover the outcome of his plan. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So after he's fired, after he no longer has a job, he's going to do something that ensures that every house he goes to in the community, he'll be welcomed in warmly. There'll always be a meal. There'll always be a bed for him to sleep in. There'll always be hospitality available to him. It's a, it's a total surefire plan. And so what he does in verse 5, he summoned each one of his master's debtors. The thought is that he called every single person that owed his master money or his boss money. We only get two stories of all the people that he called in. The first guy we, we read about is in verse 5. Um, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. How much do you owe? Well, I owe 100 measures of oil. Now, what are we talking about? Are we talking about 100 little things of olive oil from like Vons? Are we talking like 100 things of, of, oil, of olive oil from Costco? Or what are we like? Like how many of us deal in measures of oil? Nobody raised their hand. It's just you're not alone. This By what we can tell, this would be a whole crop of olive trees, like all of the olives that they produce would be converted into oil. We're talking, this is a corporate sort of scale of purchase. It's estimated that the value of the hundred measures of oil would be valued at at an average working person's pay of three years of salary. So this is a significant amount of money. By the common labor, a year and a half 
wages was just basically this is a legitimate total legal transaction the guy had every authority to do this now commentators it depends on who you read they're totally split down the middle but whatever side you read what they say is well the majority say this they only think the majority say that because that's their position and i don't think it really matters so one theory is that the amount that he's reducing would have been the interest it was illegal for the jewish person to charge interest to their fellow countrymen and so they would incorporate it into the cost or the guy's commission of management he would add his commission into the price and so to try to make this story seem better i think that they go with that one like oh he's just taking off his commission of what he would have charged them because that just sounds better than the guy was just an outright crook that he's just basically cutting the debt in half the bottom line is it doesn't really matter because it's the same outcome he wasn't supposed to do it as far as the rich man was concerned now the second guy comes in in verse seven then he said to another how much do you owe and he said a hundred measures of wheat and he said to him take your bill and write down 80 so he's going to reduce this guy's what he owes by 20 percent so it's not consistent he went from one guy to 50 percent the second guy down 20 percent now the wheat here how much is this valued it's been said i don't deal in wheat either like i don't have a wheat field or whatever but from what i read it's a hundred and a hundred acres would produce this much wheat your average labor it would be eight to nine years worth of wages for the amount of wheat that this guy owes this matter this is significant monies that are owed so he reduces that by 20 percent. so say i don't know two years so this is a lot of money and then the part that gets confusing is in verse eight so this bad manager who was fired is now relieving all kinds of money i don't know hundred thousand dollars but we just got two examples my assumption is this went across the board this could be hundreds of thousands of dollars and in verse 8 we read and his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly you guys read that correctly so it says the boss who just got ripped off walks in and sees that the guy just basically took him for hundreds of thousands of dollars and he praised him for acting shrewdly how many of you if you found out you got ripped off for 20 bucks would be happy about it none of us and so then there's great confusion like what what's going on here i kind of think that the 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 rich man walks in he's like oh touche you got me because he would find himself in a pickle because this is a totally legal transaction the the manager was acting on the owner's behalf he would benefit from it but the owner also and hit the community what a gracious man he just relieved all of this debt through all of the people of the community so for him to go back and say hey what was done there i didn't authorize that i'm i'm basically gonna want to add that money back on other people say no this is a legal transaction you can't change your company's policy so the guy was kind of in a pickle others have suggested that entrepreneurials that businessmen even in the world that aren't necessarily dishonest they can appreciate a you know a good one like man that was pretty slick like you got me i appreciate that i told a story a few months ago i don't even know that it's true but for the sake of here we're going to assume it's true the story goes that in europe somewhere i forget which country i think it was in the uk 
a car was stolen at a property. The people filed the claim that their, their car was stolen. They went to the police. They, they, they made all of their reports. They couldn't find the car. A few weeks later, the car appears back in the driveway, washed, waxed, full tank of gas, a note on the front of the front seat saying, you know what, we had a change of heart. It was really wrong that we stole your car. We topped off the tank. We filled up. We washed it, waxed it. And just to make sure that you understand that we're, we're sincere, we're including a, a gift certificate for dinner and two tickets to the opera. Family thinks, oh, that's just really gracious of them. God does move in people's hearts. People are basically good. <laughs> so then they go to the opera. They come back and they find out that their whole house has been robbed. <laughs> and see, we all laugh. See, we laugh because it's like, oh, genius. That's really horrible. But man, that was a smart crook. And so the thought is sort of along those lines, like, oh, man, you got me. And Jesus takes this example, which is hard for us to understand. And I don't I mean, it's this is why it's so difficult, because then he continues the thought in verse eight. And he says, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of the light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So Jesus kind of puts people into two different categories. He says there's the people of the world, there's the people of the light. Those who love God, walk with God, honor God. There are those people of the world that don't. And he says the people of the world, the businessmen of the world, they're more wise in their management of resources than you who are not. Now, before we go much into this, he's speaking eternally. He's not speaking. He's talking about the, the next life for the, those that are walking in the light. And he's taking, I'm already seeing like funny looks on their face. So I'm, this is right. So to the people of the world, they understand, okay, there's risk versus reward. I noticed that there's a new subway on Valley Parkway. I haven't been there yet. Everybody's going, God, what does subway sandwiches have to do with anything? The deal with like somebody who's an entrepreneur, somebody who does franchise, like you look at McDonald's, you look at Starbucks, you look at any business that's successful, they don't just randomly spit out those restaurants in these locations. They collect all of their data. How much is it going to cost to put in a restaurant? How much does it cost to do all the marketing? How many people pass by this area? How many people are likely to stop here? What other sandwich shops are in the area? They collect all of their data and they say, okay, we're going to invest $50,000, and we should have this returned to us within three years of doing business. Like, they can tell you every which way. They're, they're, they're amazing in their mathematics and, and understanding how do you sell sandwiches or coffees or whatever to make money. Jesus says the people of the world are so shrewd with their money, but Christians just kind of, or, or the people who follow me, are, don't really think about eternity in the same way. Like, remember, the Pharisees are scowling their faces, and he has all of these people talking about the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. He has all of these lost people who are now turning in. Jesus was strategic in reaching them. He went out of his way. He invested all kinds of resources. He gave his life to reach people. And he says to you, use, verse 9, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails they will receive you into the eternal dwelling. So he's talking eternity. Use the stuff that you've been entrusted with to reach people, 
to display God's love. The Pharisees had begun to use people to make money versus using their wealth and resources to love people. It's a huge contrast. And he says, I want you to start looking towards eternity. This stuff doesn't matter. I, I'm not saying this because the guesses are here. I used you guys in the last message. But like part of their like going to Romania, like I don't know the details, and so don't like everything I say is true and factual and correct up here. <laughs> but they're getting a storage container to put all of their junk in this store, stuff, stuff. <laughs> all of their, their, their stuff, like toasters and I don't know, stuff, couches, beds, kids, binkies and bottles and whatever. And they're going to put it in a storage container and they're going to ship it, right? And it's going to get there before you get there. They're, they're sending their stuff ahead. Some guy in Romania is going to get, like, see this shipping thing and go, whose junk is this? Oh, it's the guest family. They're coming in on this date. We're going to hold their stuff for them. And so that when they get there, their stuff is there waiting. And I'm really trying to make a point here. It's great in my brain. Use your unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they will receive you, that they will receive you in eternal dwellings. So Jesus begins saying here that you can use your unrighteous wealth, your resources that you've been given here, how we manage our life. It will have an effect when you get to heaven. Now, I was raised Catholic. And when I jumped ship and traded traded teams, not for theological reasons, just because I was bored and I... I, I came back. I love Catholics. I have nothing bad about Catholics. I noticed that people in the Protestant service, like, we, like, fight and die and argue over what? You're saved by grace through faith alone, period. No works, no effort, all grace, which is true. Jesus paid it all. Like, our entry into heaven, our fire insurance, everything that gets us into God's presence is solely based on Christ's work. Sometimes we argue so far on this point that we end up on the wrong side. Because Jesus makes it very clear that how we use our resources, and we'll look at other passages later in the day, like our glory in heaven and gifts, like, like we will be rewarded for actions in this life. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about our entry into heaven. Yesterday, I speak to a group of first responders. And I told them, like, listen, guys, I'm like a little bit behind the power curve. There was a, a SWAT incident on Thursday, and I break for SWAT incidences. And so I need to use you guys as dummies to kind of prepare for Sunday. So you're my guinea pigs. And so we work through this same text that I'm talking to them. And one of the firefighters, when we talked about the importance of not hoarding onto stuff and using the gifts that we've been entrusted with to prepare for our future in heaven, to honor God with it, he said, man, I'll never forget. I got called out to a suicide call. And um, he's a retired firefighter. And he said he got there. And as soon as they rolled over the guy to do work on him, inside of his jacket, the guy had stuffed like thirty to $40,000 like in his jacket. And his suicide note was essentially like, I'm taking this with me. Like, I'm not leaving it for anybody. Like, he thought he could just stuff his money and jump into the next life with his money like it would do him any good there. And I'm like, that is an awesome illustration. I am so using that. And people of the world, he who dies with the most toys wins. 
That's what that's what our world tells us. And so we hoard stuff. We hoard stuff. We begin to worship the stuff that we hoard. And Jesus says, listen, I'm trusting you with resources to reach people because God cares about people. And God has given you stuff so that you could reach people. He goes on to goes on to unpack this point. Verse 10, he says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And so this, I hear, I've heard it so many times over the course of my life. I've probably even said it at one point. I don't play the lotto anymore, but man, if I won the lotto, I'm going to give away all of it. I would so be the most generous person in the whole wide world. I have friends, oh, I'm going to go make a zillion dollars. And when I make that zillion dollars, I'm going to be so generous with that money. My dad's a retired financial advisor. And one of the things he shared with me as a young man that's always kind of stuck. He's like, Gunner, money's inert. Like it doesn't, it's totally just a tool. And money simply accentuates what you already are. So if you're a generous person and you don't have much and you get a whole bunch of money, then you're likely going to be a very generous person when you get all that money. But if you're a a hoarding person and a greedy person and a stingy person with your resources, just because you get $10 million doesn't mean you're suddenly going to be a generous person. It gets a whole lot harder to give away more money when you have a lot more money. And Jesus is trying to make, he's like really hammering home on these, these resources. And the, the point that he's getting to is here in verse 13, which is, man, he's talking to his disciples, but the Pharisees are hearing it and they are getting furious. He says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be devoted to the one and defy, despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And there's a great danger. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And money and resources, we have to keep our hearts in check because you could start out with good intentions and then you can easily have your heart go another direction. And we can easily begin to worship money. And Jesus makes it clear, no, you worship God. Don't worship money. You can't do both. And there's a saying I heard once that if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that you hit. Now, I made a great effort last service to not say I'm not endorsing throwing rocks at dogs. I think ducks were okay, but then I kind of was like, no, little boys, don't throw rocks at anything. I think you're allowed to throw it in the lake. I think that's the only safe spot that you're allowed to throw it into. But so as Jesus says this, this is like you've gone too far because who are the who are the Pharisees? They represented God. They were, they were the door by which people could access God. And they were pillaging people of their money. You pay us. You give us all your resources. And at this point in verse 14, now the Pharisees who are lovers of money were listening to all of these things and were scoffing at them. See, he's talking to his disciples, but I could just see them. If you're in a group when somebody gets angry, <laughs> People, when they get angry, they start getting verbal. They let you know that what you're saying is you don't like. 
You guys should see your faces on Sundays when I talk about stuff. I can see your reactions. <laughs> like, so I'll try to look up to the wall, especially if it's a hard subject. I'm not talking to any one person. I'm talking to me and all of us. They are angry. And Jesus is about to flip it on them. See, so now they're, they're basically condemning Jesus. Who does this guy say he is? Claiming to be the Messiah. Claiming to know all this stuff. Saying you can't love God and money at the same time. Of course we do. We love both. He doesn't even keep the law. He doesn't keep all the rules we made. He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus is about to take all of their accusations and he's going to make the same accusation back at them in a very powerful way. Verse 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So he looks at them and he says, you know what? You guys are just trying to put a big show on for people. God looks at your heart and he knows the real issue of what's going on. And this word that he says for that, which is highly esteemed among men is detestable. That word detestable could be translated abomination, which this is like, man makes my knees trembles because I'm a person. I'm a man. Like in my flesh, the things that value, that I, the things I struggle with in my flesh, God says the things that man values, it's an abomination to him. It's detestable to him. So he goes right for the jugular of the Pharisees. And he's going to address this issue of the law, that Jesus isn't fulfilling the law, that he isn't keeping the law, that he's downright like taking the law and flushing it down the toilet except they didn't have toilets back then so you don't have to wikipedia me on that like it was it's a it's a term he says in verse 16 the law and the prophets were proclaimed until john since that time the gospel of the kingdom of god has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it so he says he talks about john the baptist since john the baptist the law and the prophets have been proclaimed he makes it very clear that he's not doing away with the law i think it's in matthew 5:17 jesus says i didn't come to abolish the law i came to fulfill the law in galatians 3:24 i get it right 3:24 we're told that the law is a schoolmaster a tutor to point us to christ And he says that John the Baptist essentially was the last prophet of the Old Testament. He walks upon the pages of the New Testament. And Jesus came to fulfill the law, but he's speaking before the cross. And so he says, since the time of John the Baptist, this message of the kingdom of God has been preached. If you want to see a lot of confusion, go to the commentators. This is another good place to go. This is where I try to like purge my brain and try to like, this is just what it says. It's like, okay, Jesus came, John the Baptist came. He's preaching the law and prophets. Then when he finished, he was killed. Jesus came. The kingdom of God is now being proclaimed. And it's still continuing at the time that this is speaking. And he says that everyone is forcing his way into it. All of the lost people, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son, representing those people, the sinners and tax collectors at his feet, they're longing They've never heard a preacher preach like Jesus could preach. That he could explain God in a way that no other person could. John 1, something like 18 or so, tells us that he's the perfect picture of God for us and our finite brains that can grasp. And people are longing to get more of God. And they're pressing, they're forcing their way into the kingdom of God. 
But then he says in verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke. This one stroke in the Hebrew alphabet as you're going through, there's like little tick marks, tiny. He's talking about one of those things. It's easier for the whole heavens and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law to fail. It's like, I did not come to abolish the law. I am fulfilling the law. And then there's verse 18, which like, like reading this and reading this and reading this. How does verse 18 fit? Verse 19 goes right into a, another rich man in Lazarus. But in the middle, Jesus like interjects something about divorce. Like what in the world does this have to do with anything? Struggling. And then Kelly, right? Miss Pat came to me on Wednesday. Miss Pat is teaching the kids and the seven, 12 year olds. She said, oh, yeah, I swapped with Kelly, and I'm teaching them. And I looked, I'm like, I'm so sorry. It's, like, so hard. This is, like, the worst passage. I'm like, I'll pray for you. We'll be praying for you. But I'm looking at this. I'm like, and divorce is in here. Like, what is, what is Jesus saying? He, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from his husband commits adultery. Wait a minute. He's talking about the law and prophets and John the Baptist. One letter of the law won't pass away. Then he talks about divorce. And then in verse 19, now there was a rich man. What? Like, how does this fit? Been racking my brains. And then it dawned on me, I'm not a Pharisee listening to Jesus as he's talking. And if you start digging on the Pharisees and the Jews during this time, you're going to uncover how this fits. See, the Jews were telling Jesus that he wasn't obeying the law, that they were perfect. See, Paul the Apostle, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he says, I thought before God I was blameless because I kept all of the rules and the rules about the rules and the rules of the rules of the rules and the rules perfectly blameless. They thought they were without sin. They thought they were keeping the law. And Jesus is slowly turning the knife on them to show them their hypocrisy and their failing of maintaining even a little bit of the old law. And he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, Jesus says a whole lot about divorce in other places, and the Bible speaks about divorce. But one thing we want to let just kind of settle is it, the Bible is very clear that God hates divorce. And this sits upon their shoulders, and I just imagine their nostrils flaring. It's like, what is going on? And when you study about their understanding of divorce, there was a little bit of divide amongst the Pharisees. But the majority of them, for them divorce, you could, a husband could leave his wife if she burnt his dinner. She burns dinner, that's justifiable to move on. Or if you found a, a girl that you found more cute, totally okay to leave her for, totally okay to leave your wife for the cuter girl. These guys were all like, just like no commitment to their wives at all. And they all looked, well, it's okay with me. It's okay with you. Okay, well, you're another Pharisee. You're another scribe. Well, let's write a law about this. If your wife burns dinner, you, it's totally okay to leave. During the last service, I think about three husbands got punched in the shoulder. It was hilarious. At like the snide remarks. Oh, if you see a cuter wife, hmm, I think this would be great. If you see a girl that you think's cute, why don't you just, it's okay to leave your wife. You think that's good? Yeah, I think that's good. So all of these guys had like wandered away from their wives. They thought very lowly of marriage. And Jesus, by saying this, 
confronts their hypocrisy. They say, guys, I'm the one maintaining the law. You are failing on the whole law. And if we follow this thread, like the one point, if we turn our page, or if I turn my page over to Luke chapter 17, because Jesus is going to keep talking. He's going to keep telling parables. And I just love in verse 5, Jesus is going to keep teaching, keep teaching, keep teaching. And then in verse 5 of chapter 17, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Like, they, like they're like dying with the stuff he's saying. The stuff that Jesus, like, who am I to teach this? And when I kind of back up and I look at the big picture of what Jesus is saying here, I, I learned a couple lessons. A few years ago, well, two saints, my father-in-law, who I spent a lot of time with, and he was really my mentor into the pastoral ministry. He said two things that have, well, he said a whole bunch of stuff, but two things have really stuck into my brain. We were in a theological argument with some people. I don't even remember the issue. And he said, you know what? The Pharisees thought they'd figured everything out, and they totally missed Christ. And, and he said, you know, when I start discussing this stuff, my goal is not to win. My goal is to determine the truth. What does the Bible say? And I think looking, it's easy to kind of laugh at the Pharisees. They got so off base, but they were, humans are so good at justifying their positions. We're not God. And I think the first thing that we see is we need to humble ourselves before the Lord and before the word and say, Lord, here I am. Like, it's okay if your word if, like, the word should hurt at times. Like, because it's doing a work, it cuts you. It kind of cuts you down, and you've, ah. Oh. And then after he cuts you with his word, he begins to heal you through the spirit and, and molding you into the person that you need to be. And these Pharisees, the second thing that my father-in-law said to me that stuck is, we, as Christians, need to hold ourselves. When I say ourselves, it's not y'all. It's not plural. It's you individually. Like, I need to hold myself gunner to the highest biblical standard that's possible. And I need to hold all y'all to the lowest biblical standard. But we flip-flop that so much. And the Pharisees, they had a very low baseline for what was acceptable for them. But then they put everybody down because they weren't making the mark. Earlier, Jesus said, like, you make rules and you don't even keep the rules that you make. That you expect other people, you're breaking their backs. They're trying to find God, and you're like linebackers taking them out. But in all of this, in the management of our resources, I think whenever we look at money, so often, I, unfortunately, pastors come in, and they'll start talking about you know money and your wealth and managing it. It's normally like a lead-in to give more money. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that God gave this to us to manipulate us with guilt so that we would change for like a moment. And then as soon as that guilt went away, then we kind of go into cruise control until we're guilted and our arms are twisted again. What I think Jesus is trying to do here is to, to help us to see the then. The then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.10, the Bema Seat of Christ, that one day we all are going to stand before him. We're going to see God in all of his glory. 
in all of his holiness, both the believers and the unbelievers. It's going to be a beautiful day. And he wants us to see that day so that it affects how we live in the now. If you'll turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to look at three different passages. We're kind of in the conclusion spot if you're a visitor and you're like, man, this guy talks forever. I've been accused of that. (laughs) But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, like anytime you read anything out of Corinthians, you got to understand this is like the Jerry Springer church. They were a mess, total mess. And Paul's writing them. He's responding to their questions that they had. They were unclear on some points. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul, remember the Pharisee who thought he was perfect and blameless until he met Christ on the road to Damascus, writes this. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one, than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day. That's the second Corinthians chapter five, ten, the day, the beam of seat when we appear, the then for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's each man's work. And any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. I'm going to start with the second guy. See, this is the guy that has his fire insurance. He's trusted in Christ. It's all about Jesus. You're saved by grace through faith alone. This is the man that gets his fire insurance. He trusts in Christ. He lives nothing for the Lord for the rest of the days of his life. He dies. He stands before the Lord and it's a fire, this refining fire he goes through. He shoots through on the other side and it turns out that there's absolutely nothing this guy did. In faith, in obedience, nothing remained. But verse 15 says he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. And I get this picture. I don't know if it was back to the future. There's that guy with all like the white crazy hair. And I think there's a scene when he shoots out of the time machine and he's like still smoking. You know, I don't even know if that's a right movie, but this is kind of like it's the right movie. I, this is that picture that comes to my mind when I see this. It's like, whoa. I'm in glory. I made it. Barely. I'm like still smoking through the fire. But Jesus' work was sufficient. When I was a Navy SEAL instructor, I would always crack up. Where all of us as a staff, we would crack up. We would get these kids and they would show up and they could barely perform to the minimum standard. And I remember, like, I always talked to them. I was like the pastor instructor. I say, hey, did you, um, did you, like, realize that you're going to be required to exercise when you got here? Like, you knew that you were expected to, like, 
to have a four-mile timed run and to do, like, some pull-ups and push-ups. Like, you didn't, like, miss the fine print or anything, did you? It's like, no, 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 no. Their answer was always, well, we could pass the screen test. And the screen test is, like, you run a mile and a half, you do eight pull-ups, you do 40 push-ups, like, very minimal stuff. And so now whenever I get guys that say, hey, I'm going to go be a SEAL, what advice do you I'm like, don't train for that screen test. That, that screen test is just the entry. Like, that's just the baseline to get in. You're going to have 15-mile timed run. You're going to have a six-mile timed ocean swim. Like, there's going to be all kinds of stuff you have to do. And while we as Protestants stand and die for salvation by grace through faith alone, it's not the end of the story. That hymn that I love singing, one of my favorites, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Discipleship comes through giving Christ all. By honoring him and obeying him. And as we do stuff, we get rewards. Verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. We're told that we're going to cast those at Jesus' feet. But so so, so the, the way we live our lives, when we get to that day, there's a potential. Like I'm hoping for one little reward. Just one. I just don't want to be the guy that doesn't have anything. Like just something. Which is crazy to think that that day we're gonna our lives now matter for then. Now, if you'll turn with me over to Second Corinthians chapter four, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Chapter five is the great chapter. The Lord has used this chapter in my life so many ways. Where verse ten, the great beam of seat talks about, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. All through the scriptures we see this. Salvation is by grace alone through faith, but there we will be rewarded for our lives for good and bad. And leading up to this passage in chapter four, verse sixteen, Paul begins to write about the the picture of the then affects how he lives in the now. He says, therefore, that therefore relates back up to verse 14, which says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And as Paul thinks about this truth, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, that's the now, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. That's the then. That, that glorious day that we're moving towards, God is chipping away at the eternal part of us. He's refining us. Our outer man is passing away. We're losing our hair. We're getting more around the waistline. We're slowly dying. But the inner man, the eternal man, God is chipping away. Verse 17, for For momentary light affliction, Paul would be put to death for his declaration as Christ is Lord. Tradition holds that his head was cut off, and he refers to this as light affliction. This light affliction in the now is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. The then. The suffering that he's going through today is creating this eternal weight of glory then. Far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, that's the now, 
But of the things which are not seen, that's the then. For the things which are seen are temporal. Everything we see and touch is passing away. But the things which are not seen, the then, they're eternal. Forever. No end. Those are the things of value. Continue with me over to Ephesians chapter 5. The last point. One of my favorite verses in, in the whole Bible, and I say that about a bunch of verses, but it's definitely one of them. This was one of my favorite verses for years and years and years, and after it was my favorite verses for years and years and years, I realized that I had it all wrong. And even in the right understanding of it, it's still my favorite verse. But then it became my biggest struggle. <laughs> and here Paul continues. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So this make the most of your time. I always understood this to be the Greek word chronos, which means walk, like watch. I'm an American. I live and die by the watch. Are you hungry? Well, what time is it? Well, five minutes to noon. I'm going to be hungry in five minutes. Most of the world, it's like hunger has to do with how you fill in your belly, not to do with the time. Like everything's about the clock. And so I read this verse for years. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. Okay, I have 24 hours in a day. So if I'm going to make the most of my time, I've got to cram as much stuff into that time period because the days are evil. So I'm going to do as much as I can. Extremely type A personality. I'm going to go, 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 go. Because the days are evil. I've got to make the most of my time. Busy man always has time. I'll make time for anything. I can squeeze it in. I can do anything. It's okay. And then, like after about six years of living like that, I thought I would check out the Greek of this passage that I thought I, like I already knew. What's the point? And I come to find that that word for time is not chronos. It's kairos, which changes everything. Kairos are make the most of the appointed times, the the appointed opportunities. Like you only have so much time in your life that we need to wisely appraise how we use them. So when I look at this picture and we realize how holy and awesome and just great God is and that we're sinful man and that Jesus' work on the cross through grace and believing in his work enables us to come into God's presence... That's awesome. And then we realize that when we stand before him on that day, we're going to give an account for how we live our life and that he's given us resources and opportunities. And we don't necessarily need to take every single opportunity in looking at this passage. At this passage and the one that Jesus talks about in Luke 16. One of my favorite, like, I love elderly people. I love talking to people at the near the end of their life. When they're in that like last chapter and you start asking, like, what would you do differently? What wisdom can you share with me? Do you know almost I I haven't had a single person say, I wish I worked more hours. I wish I, um, I, I wish I just worked harder and got more cars and got more stuff. Most answers that I hear from people, I wish I'd taken more time to like learn about the things of God. I wished I'd take taken more time to, to spend with my family. 
There's a song that Anne always laughs at me about. It's like the one song I know the words to. Like half the time I listen to songs and I don't listen to the words. Like I, but this one song, it has a profound impact on me as a young man. The cat's in the cradle, right? Cat's in the cradle with a silver spoon, little boy, something, you know. But the song is powerful because it starts out the singer from the position of this little boy. And all he wants to do is spend time with his dad. But his dad's always too busy working. And then he grows and he grows and then he becomes the dad. And his kid wants to play. He says, sorry, son. You know, I'm just really busy right now. I don't have time for you. And now the dad's now retired wanting to spend time with his son. And his son, sorry, dad, I'm too busy to spend time with you. That song had a profound impact in my life. I don't even know. Like, I'm not a really profound person. And, and like, the 16-year-old Gunner was hardly profound. But that song, like, impacted me. That life is passing us by. All sorts of opportunities. Good, bad, all sorts of stuff. And Ephesians 5.15 says, Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Making the most of your time. Pray, ask God, God, what opportunities do you want me to take? My greatest sin is I do too much. I'm, God's constantly doing a work on me to like cut back, to cut back, to cut back. I'm constantly having to prune my life. Because I just want to do it all. But when we see that end day and realize that God cares about what we do, it humbles us before him that we would be wise in how we live out our days. And I truly don't want anybody here to, to, to feel like there's some pressure, like guilt to, to, to twist your arm and to changing your behavior. You know, January 1st just passed. Did anybody, oh, I shouldn't even say it. Most people do a New Year's resolution to lose weight, to eat healthy, whatever. It lasts about three days. Like there's already exercise equipment all over the United States that was just bought for Christmas that's now got cobwebs on it. But people who then make that change from like unhealth to like, no, like Jared from Subway, since I got Subway on my brain and I'm three minutes away from lunch. It's like he had this, like you have a whole worldview conversion where you don't, you're not on a diet, you're just on a healthy lifestyle. And what God doesn't want us to do is to to be manipulated by guilt that we would change our behavior for the momentary but then it fades until you need more guilt put on you what he wants is is for us to have a conversion to christ yes but even more importantly a a worldview conversion that we see the world and the thing around everything around us through the lens of scripture because when we have a worldview that's like that when stuff starts going bad we recognize no you know what god's bigger than whatever problem i'm facing and he's giving this to me because he's doing a work in my life. It changes everything. As we like plan out our calendars, as we look at the things that we do, and we think, you know, one day I'm going to give an account for this. Am I spending my time wisely? Am I making the most of every opportunity in a way that's pleasing with God? And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I um, come before you and... I, Lord, we just thank you and praise you for Christ. Lord, we thank you that our salvation is not based on works. For there's nothing that we could do to justify our entrance into your holy presence. Father, I pray that the majesty of your glory 
that we would have clarity to realize how desperate we are apart from you and to think that you and your wisdom before the foundation of the earth knew that we would need you. We thank you that you sent Christ to live the perfect life, that he would fulfill the law completely, that on that cross, he that knew no sin bore the weight of our sin, that he took the punishment that my sin deserved. We thank you that by your grace that you've poured out upon us, Lord, through faith we can restore a relationship with you, that we could be, that we could enter into your glory, Lord, through Christ. And Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to walk in grace, to live in grace, um, to respond in love to you, Lord. May our lives be pleasing to you, Lord. Help us uh, to really examine how we spend our time, how we spend our resources, how we spend the gifts that you've entrusted us with, Lord. Help us to live our lives today in light of that day when we stand before you. Lord, increase our faith, Lord. We, uh, there are things that are just hard for us to like fully comprehend, and we pray that you would increase our faith, Lord. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.